Hello and welcome to a Channel 33 podcast. My name is Sean Fennessy. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Ringer and I'm joined today by James Gray, a writer and director of films like The Yards, We Own the Night, Two Lovers and the Immigrant. His new movie, The Sweeping and Beautiful, The Lost City of Z, tells the true story of the Edwardian explorer Percy Fawcett, who went on a quest to find the titular Amazonian civilization. James, thanks for being here. It's nice to be here. This is a uh, beautiful movie that is very similar to some of your movies, but also very different. It is a uh, an adventure story. It is a story about obsession. You've never made an obs- adventure story before, but you have made some movies about obsession. Why did you uh, make this movie? You know, uh, Stanley Kubrick once said, he said, you know, somebody asked him why you make the movie you make and you know why you choose a story. And he said, well, it's a little bit like, you know, uh, asking why you married your wife. There are, you know, there's a lo- she has a nice figure and a lovely face, but there are a lot of women who have nice figures and lovely faces. He said, you know, the point is you don't really know exactly why. But I can tell you in my case, I had been sent the book in, in 2008 before it was published. And I have no idea why, by the way, Brad Pitt and Dee Dee Gard and Jeremy Kleiner, who are the producers of the movie, why they sent it to me, because nothing in my work would show that I could go to the Amazon jungle and the United Kingdom and so forth. But um, they did send it to me, and I was attracted not by the Amazon stuff, which I knew would be more or less a logistical catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I was attracted by one very small passage in the book where... It talks about his father, and it's you know this great explorer who had all these guts, and it says his father was an, al- an alcoholic who um, destroyed not one but two family fortunes. I'm not even sure how that's possible uh, with drink and gaming. And I thought, well, that's interesting. This guy who was willing to do anything, essentially risk his life on a repeated basis for a 20-year period, essentially had to make up for a lack. And I found that very powerful and related to it personally. So I began to get interested in the story really through that and not through any of the other sort of surface elements. Now, of course, once you start writing and working and researching, and I went down to the jungle and all that, uh, you begin to get your own form of obsession. But my friend, a friend of mine saw the film last night, and he pointed out something very funny. He said that he thought that the film was an explorer, that the character was, a, in a way, a metaphor for movie directing. So I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you go into an unknown place, you get incredibly obsessed, you neglect your wife and children, and sometimes it leads to success, but sometimes it leads to disaster. I said, oh, I haven't thought about that. All right, well, I hope this leads to success, but I'm not sure. So you started pursuing the movie back when you were sent the book by Plan B. But then there's this interregnum, there's eight, nine years before you're pursuing it. That's right. What's that experience like when you throw yourself into something? Like, Did you go to the Amazon eight years ago and start exploring there? Yeah, it's a very painful experience, Mm -hmm. to be frank, uh, because with movies, you know, it's not like painting. If you're an artist, you know, painter, even a sculptor, although that's a different machine in a way, but if you're a painter, you go to the art store and you spend 50 bucks on paint and $100 on canvas or something, and then you go and you can do whatever you want and people might like it or hate it. You can sell it, not sell it, but you can do it and express yourself. And with a movie, you essentially need millions of dollars and hundreds of people for two years at a stretch. And I've often joked that years from now, 100 years, 200 years from now, people are going to look at us having made films as a civilization and look at it as like making the pyramids. 
You know, like even today, I still I have that sensation. Like I I, I saw Cleopatra with with Elizabeth Taylor, which is the most expensive movie ever made, adjusted for inflation. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, Joseph Mankiewicz, the director, has a scene where there's ten thousand extras. Now, you cannot do that anymore. You cannot get ten thousand people to appear on screen. You don't need to. You can CGI. You 10, have CG yeah. CG ten thousand people. So even today, people go. How did they do that? Mm-hmm. How did they do that? Look at they got tell So imagine 100, 200 years from now, you're going to take out a tablet. You're going if, if there even are tablets, you're going to talk to some computer system and you're going to say AI and you're going to say, oh, I'm thinking of a movie, handsome guy or beautiful woman, and they do X, Y, and Z, and then the computer does the whole thing for you. So to your question, which of course I'm now, uh, I'm now, I've now strayed from, but I did go to the Amazon and. I went to where Fawcett actually was, which is a region called the Pantanal in Brazil. My first instinct was I said, you know, I have to go where Fawcett actually was. That's it. I have to make the movie there. And then I got there, and it's a true sadness, but so much of the jungle has been clear-cut for soybean farming. And you realize, okay, uh, where, where was Fawcett? And the Brazilian guide said, Mr. James, he was here. And you look around, and you think, this is Nebraska. And I realized at that moment, okay, I have to, I have to invent some kind of reality that adheres to the what the story was because this ain't here anymore. Mm-hmm. So I did do a lot of traveling around Brazil, and I went to Argentina as well. And we wound up shooting ultimately in Colombia and Peru. And the period that it takes to make a film, it can either help you or it can hurt you. You know, you change as a person much more than you think you do. I mean, I know people say, oh, so and so is really set in his ways. But we change a lot. And from 2008, just to give you some kind of idea, I had two very young children to today I have three children who talk back to me. (laughs) And that alone is a major step in human beings' development, Mm -hmm. not just theirs, but my own. So you try to fill that part of the story with a meaning that it didn't have in 2008 but maybe something in 2008 that you were that was part of you is no longer there. Uh, you know, I'm now in my mid 40s, and uh, you know, when you're in your mid 30s, you have greater stamina. I was horrible to say that, but it is true. Yeah. Well, I, on the other hand, you might have ended up with a Fitzcarraldo situation or something like that. Well, I certainly hope not. I mean, the thing about Fitzcarraldo, which sits, you know, sort of in the firmament, along with Aguirre, The Wrath of God, and Apocalypse Now, and uh, a handful of other films made the Basically, lengthy, painful, agonizing yes, jungle. The jungle films. terrors, yeah. right? Um, the thing about Fitzcarraldo, if you know, is a documentary about it. I don't know if you've, you've Burden seen of it. Dreams, yeah, great Burden movie. of Dreams, sure. Uh, which is both really funny because Herzog is very funny and extremely engaging, and also absolutely mortifying because you know people got killed making that movie, mm-hmm. and no, no movie is worth somebody getting killed. So you definitely, I mean, I definitely had terror. I was, you know. In candor, I was horrified by the notion that, you know, I'm genetically designed to be an accountant in Minsk, not to be hanging out in Amazonia. And I was very concerned that the production would just spiral out of control. Did you ever have any truly scary moments while you were making it? Every day. Really? Oh, yeah. How does that manifest? Well, I mean, in different ways. There, there, it depends on the terror of the that specific day. I mean, one day we were shooting on the river. I'm just tell you this story. We were shooting on the Don Diego River and Charlie Hunnam and Robert Pattinson are in the water and up to their knees in a part of the river that was very shallow. 
and they were pushing the raft against the upriver, and it was just a, it was murder. I mean, it was 100 degrees, 100% humidity. Everybody's passing out. It's terrible. In any event, I look over and I see what I think is a looks like a crocodile or alligator or something run up the banks of the river, which we were all standing in with the cameras and with the actors. And I called over the producer, the Colombian producer, who was a terrific guy. I said to him, I said, uh, are there crocodiles in this water? Mr. James, no crocodile in this water. None, none. I said, okay. So I believe him, and then I'm shooting, and on another take, I see, you know, the eye and the snout of the thing right near the edge of the banks of the river. And I flipped out. I called him over, and I said, what is that? He said, Mr. James, it's not a crocodile. He's a black caiman. Now, God knows why, but at the, on the day, I kind of went, oh, all right. And that somehow comforted me. I walked off. We finished our day. And I came back to L.A. I told my editor this story when we were cutting. And he said, Black Cayman? He said, I, I don't know. I, I think that's maybe worse. So we looked it up on Wikipedia. And, of course, it's a kind of crocodile, but significantly more dangerous. Now, how we were not attacked by Black Caymans, because they were everywhere. I saw them after that. Uh, I have no idea. But... It was a, you know, it was that was one day, you know, another day. The we were shooting this scene, and it was Charlie and Rob on the banks of the river, and we, it was the middle of the night. We were shooting it, and midway through, about take six, I had gotten what I thought was good. I was working on something that I thought might be interesting for seven take seven take eight something like that, and I start hearing in the middle of the take, uh, me being obnoxious, I kind of, my first instinct was, who's making noise during my take of my movie? You know, here I am in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night on the river, in the jungle, and people are yelling. And what it was, was our our marine team, they were up the river, and they told me that the river was rising. So I said, well, so what? The river's going to rise? How long is it going to take? We're, you know, we're almost done here. We did six takes. I'll do a few more, then I do medium shots, and a few hours will be gone. When I tell you that within 30 seconds, the biggest rush of water I have ever seen came and overtook not just the set, but all of us. And when I, I mean, it was a rush like I had never seen before. The banks of the river totally swallowed up by the river. Everyone pulled the cameras out, started running, and the river was basically rising like this as the guy was running with the camera. And you can't see what I'm doing here if you're listening to this podcast, but it was rising at an unbelievable rate up to the cameraman's chin as he runs to the banks of the river, holding the camera over his head. And this was a daily occurrence. So you're always an inch away from catastrophe. Now, having said that, somehow we got very lucky and always managed to just about escape. Now, that scene, I never went back and got any more coverage. Mm -hmm but I had enough in the editing room to put it together. So, you know, with someone like Francis Coppola, he, he didn't escape that. I mean, there was monsoons and Martin Sheen had a heart attack. And How, how many days did you shoot? I mean, Apocalypse Now shot for a long time. Apocalypse Now was there for, I mean, I know that he was there for a year, mm -hmm. which is madness. I mean, there were hiatuses and he would go back to the United States in mm -hmm. between there. It wasn't a solid year, but I know that he was, I think he shot for 270 days or something like that. We were there for four months. Okay. Which is much easier, but it's still not, I mean, after about two weeks, a certain kind of, uh, there's a, I don't want to say it's punishing, but because again, you're doing something that you want to be doing. At the same time, there's a level of physical punishment, which is quite uh, powerful. 
And when you don't have telephones or television or your computer isn't working because it's so humid and you find yourself in this space with this bed with this mosquito net at night listening to the sounds of the jungle which are alive. Mm -hmm. I mean, the jungle is... You realize that we're invaders in a world dominated by insects and animals. And there's a kind of a terror and a, and a cabin fever that does set in after about two weeks. The first two weeks I was there, I was like, this is incredible. It was 100 degrees with 100% humidity, but I was tolerating it, and I looked like a beekeeper, and I was filled with sweat at the end of every day. But, you know, after two weeks, you want, you want the massage, the air conditioning, the, you know, the dumplings sent to you from Din Tai Fung with the soy sauce. <laughs> you know, I, I just was... I was they do say the jungle madness is real, though, you know, that it is something that, that infects you. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, all of your other films are essentially based in New York, take place all entirely in New York. You are from New York. Uh, was this a purposeful choice to say, I want to get out of the milieu that I've been working in for the last 25 years almost? I'm not sure it was a conscious thing at first, but it certainly is, became the case. It, it, it's a very tricky thing when you're a film director and you want to make personal films or films that you care about as opposed to, you know, someone who just takes a job or whatever. You're trying to express yourself and you're trying to say the same thing really over and over, but with a different frosting, you know, you're making the same cake with a different exterior. And I just felt I, I couldn't keep making movies in New York. At some point, you fall into a rut and it's a dangerous thing. You know, there's a very familiar thing that uh, a lot of creative people repeat to themselves and each other, which is that you have to give the audience not what it wants, but what it needs. A lot of times the audience doesn't know what it needs. And a lot of times the audience has to catch up to something. So if you look at, for example, uh, Vertigo, which is now considered the greatest film ever made according to most polls, mm -hmm. It was a big failure for Hitchcock and a major disappointment. And he himself regarded it as a failure. And she said, Jimmy Stewart is too old for the part. And he, he I, I don't know if he loved Kim Novak. And you look at the movie now and Kim Novak's incredible. Jimmy Stewart's brilliant. The whole thing is a masterpiece beyond comprehension. But it was not accepted. Hitch blew it this time, said the reviews. So you realize that it, there's always a risk, and you have to keep trying to push and see if you can make something interesting. Most of the times, let's be honest, most of the times you are met with failure. Um, that is something you have to accept. Most of the times, you know, I have been met with terrible failure, and yet not. I'm still here. So at some point, you have to kind of be willing to break out and to try to do new things, and I just felt that the jungle was the best way to do that. Well, you mentioned terrible failure, which is like maybe a complicated way of defining some of the things that you've gone through in your career. It's a notable parallel, something like Vertigo. Some of your films are were received rapturously at first. Others were received with a complicated, sometimes booze at film festivals, sometimes negative reviews depending on the country that you're, you're in. I'm curious specifically what it's like to be told that what you've worked hard on is bad. And, you know, for someone like you, I, I get the impression that with this film, there's going to be a lot of conversation about James Gray being one of our great American filmmakers, which, um, you know, maybe is something you wouldn't have necessarily been able to say after, I don't know, the yards or, or even some of the complications you had with the immigrant. So as you look at the scope of your career and the way it's received, how do you stay even and what is it like to process all that information? Well, that's an incredible question. It's weird. I've never actually been asked that before. 
you know, it's very, it's very hard. I, 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 I'm reluctant to say it's hard because so many people live lives. I'm luckier than 99.99% of all humans that have ever existed. But in a sense that that, that is an, a meaningless fact because all of the, all of life is relative. Mm-hmm. So speaking about myself, it's very hard to hear people say that you're not good because uh, it, it, you don't, you don't, you don't try to create a work of art, if I may be so bold as to say that, which nobody likes or nobody responds to. On the other hand, you do have to keep in your mind this idea that it is a marathon and not a sprint. And all of the heroes of mine who have had lengthy and beautiful careers in the cinema, whether it's Mr. Hitchcock or Stanley Kubrick or Martin Scorsese or Francis Ford Coppola or so many great people making films in the English language only I've just mentioned. But even someone like Federico Fellini. Now, if you said some Federico Fellini is he a great director, if they've heard of him, they would say, of course. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Fellini was, you know, his movies were treated terribly in, in, in Italy. Um, even La Strada was considered a you know, bad movie. And it took America to sort of discover him. So you see that the, the field is littered with people who sort of left their guts on the table and gets, got slaughtered for it. And at a certain point, you say, well, if it happens to someone as great as Fellini or Stanley Kubrick, I have to kind of readjust my expectations. You wind up kind of trying to have tunnel vision and saying, how can I do the best that I can and let the chips fall where they may? That's all we can do. Now, there are some few rare examples, rare where the person is expressing him or herself, and somehow it manages to hit. But if you look at someone like Francis Ford Coppola, when he made The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, something happened where it aligned perfectly, the timing was right, everything worked somehow, and his masterpieces, and they are beyond genius, somehow clicked commercially, even though you're making three-hour-long movies about someone's moral bankruptcy. So it does happen, but it's, you know, just because it does happen, you also have to realize it's very rare, and you have to be zen about it. Now, to be honest with you, I, I, I have had very difficult times, but at other times, I realize how lucky I am. Do you specifically strive for that seemingly unattainable iteration of success? Like, do you say, I want my movie to, this movie will be a massive hit and will be understood by the, the thoughtful film goers of the world? You try to do that. Why wouldn't you? I, I mean, because it seems very far away. It's impossible. It's impossible. I mean, I shouldn't say this, although I will, because in, I, it sounds almost like I am berating or underrating the Beatles. But if John Kennedy hadn't been assassinated in November of 63... Would their appearance on Ed Sullivan in February of 64 been greeted with such rapturousness? Or was the country ready for something so disarmingly different, having been through this catastrophe, this collective sense of mourning? So knowing that you are totally beholden to the ebb and flow of history and fashion, this idea, I'm going to make a film that's a personal expression, but it's also going to make a trillion dollars and everybody's going to love it, is so ridiculous. 
it's so impossible. The only way to make a film you know that will be a success would be to basically test the movie like crazy and jerry-rig it so that it fits every desire or craving that most people want. Mm -hmm. And it would have to be based on a branded product that has already existed. And even then, there's and no even, guarantee. And even yeah. then, absolutely right. Yeah. Even then, there is no guarantee. So if you look at it that way, my dream really now, uh, knowing that this is not necessarily uh, in the cards, maybe it is, but maybe it's not, what I've tried to do, and I'm, I'm very close friends with Wes Anderson, and um, what I've admired about Wes from afar, as much as I can admire him from afar, uh, is that he has created a kind of brand for himself. Now, he would never put it as crassly as that, but it is remarkable and wonderful that people go to his movies on the basis of his name, or the Coen brothers, mm -hmm. or people like that. They've created this kind of brand, and that is itself sort of uh, a real testament to their talent. Yeah, it's like a redefinition of the phrase intellectual property, right? right. They, they have sort of created something that no matter what, right. it has their imprimatur on it, and then you can know what you're getting going That's in. That's right. That's right. It, it is it is the most elegant form of sort of Big Mac-ization, which is not to say that, you know, Wes or Martin, obviously they're, they're artists, but, but they have been able to marshal somehow in a great way that ability uh, and that's how, and that's you know, that's something I suppose I can aspire to. Mm -hmm. Kobe Beef Big Mac? Yeah. Uh, maybe. Yeah. The Kobe Beef Big Mac. Hey guys, we're just going to take a quick break and have a word from our sponsors. Have you ever been on a website and thought, this seems good, but what if it were a TV show instead? You're in luck. Since 1993, the AV Club has produced some of the best pop culture writing on the web. And now after 20 years of talking about TV, things are coming full circle for the folks at the AV Club. They're getting their own TV show. Hosted by longtime AV Club editor John Teddy, the AV Club show is a weekly deep dive that invites everyone, fanatics and casual observers alike, to look closer and laugh more at every corner of pop culture, from TV to movies to music to games and beyond. So get your snack of choice and turn on Fusion TV to catch the AV Club, hosted by John Teddy, Thursdays at 9 Eastern. And be sure to visit fusion.net slash where to watch for details. Okay, now back to my conversation with filmmaker James Gray. So let's 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 ground this a little bit more about the movie. Um, sure. It's based on a David Grand book, we should say. Tremendous journalist who writes for the New Yorker. It's a very um, deeply reported and considered book about something that happened a hundred years ago. Yeah. How do you get the level of detail of a story like that onto the screen, and how do you make a decision about what doesn't go on the screen? Well, the first answer is that you don't get all that detail on the screen. A lot of it, you know, immediately has to come out. Most great films that are based on books or something like that, of pre-existing properties, if we may use a vulgar term, are based on short stories, actually. Short stories are excellent for uh, movies because they seem to fit the running time. Now, I've mentioned The Godfather, which, of course, is based on Mario Puzo's novel. But even there, Francis took out huge sections of the book and made very interesting decisions. In fact, there's a, a wonderful book called The Godfather Notebook that has just been published about Francis's original notes on the pages of the book itself. It's remarkable to see the choices he made where an artist is making every single correct decision. Mm. I mean, it's crazy. The approach that I took was to say, okay, I know that I can't do the whole book because that would be a 27-hour-long miniseries, maybe interesting only to me. So 
what is not part of this major thread that I'm trying to pursue? Well, first half the book is David Grant himself going around trying to find Percy's footsteps, Fawcett's footsteps. And uh, I felt, you know, that was like me going down to the jungle, and that's not interesting. And even so, I had seen a kind of postmodern retelling of, you know, Adaptation, for example, mm -hmm. with Nicolas Cage, which is a beautiful film, but it is very much that kind of strange postmodern adaptation. So I, I thought, well, it's been done wonderfully well. Why would I want to do that again? What is new? Well, what is new sometimes is old. And what is new is a movie in the style almost of like David Lean or Francis Ford Coppola or something like that, a kind of epic American, uh, in Lean's case, English, of course, but uh, English language epic kind of historical tale. So I said, okay, well, let's lose the grand stuff. And that was half the book. Made the situation a little bit easier. Then he went on eight trips in real life. I reduced it to three, one for each act of the film. And you have to rid yourself of the belief that you have to include every fact because movies are not, features are not documentaries. You know, we, we are not beholden to the absolute details of the truth. We're beholden maybe to a spirit of the truth, but I'm not even sure then. One uses history in a very, very uh, free and, and um, maybe reinventive way. You know, which has been shown throughout history, right? You don't go to Shakespeare's Richard III and say, um, it's not very accurate, Richard III, now is it? And then throw fruit at the actors or something. Right. You have to free yourself. And I, as I said earlier, this idea that I had gravitated towards, this person striving for acceptance, and that was the cause and the beginnings of that obsession, that lack in him. What is it that... Conf that conforms to that thematic idea and what is it that gets in the way of that and that begins to all of a sudden narrow your focus even further and pretty soon you've got something that starts to take shape and the first draft of the script I believe was 175 pages which is very long it's about a minute a page it corresponds to and nobody wants to sit through three hours anymore and then you find yourself focusing and focusing and focusing and in that way actually the amount of time that I had to work on the film stood me in good stead so you're you're obviously extraordinarily film literate, thoughtful. You've referenced Cleopatra, Vertigo, and just in this conversation, um, I'm curious that you've partnered with Amazon to release the movie. What is that like to know that the film industry is changing in that way? Obviously, the film will go into theaters, yeah. But there is something happening right now where there's a uh, discussion about when where something should be seen first. The notion of movie going, you know, how does that make you feel as somebody who obviously really cares about the the art? Also a great question. You know, 10 years ago, I would give interviews and people would say, you know, talk about the future of cinema. And I felt very much like a Cassandra. You know, I, I, I thought that movie sort of reflected a kind of a temporary moment. And people assume that art forms last forever. But let's face it, if you were a composer of opera, you would be in deep trouble Opera was a popular medium in 1860 or 1870. I mean, when Verdi died, 400,000 people lined the streets of Rome for his funeral. And today you can go to the opera, but you dress up and it's $300 for a great seat, and it's, which is crazy. And you know, who can pay that, you know? And it's become a rarefied thing. And I started to see that movies, the tradition where you go and you sit in the theater and you watch the film and you pay your money, eat your popcorn, and then 
enjoy that as a communal experience, that that was under grave threat. This was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that anything I said then has been disproven by anything happening now. I think where we are headed toward is a world, which is Amazon and Netflix, where essentially you mostly watch these things at home on your 60 or 70-inch television. Now, I'm against that because I feel that the communal experience is important. And I'm sad that we might lose that. Is it? Does it hurt me and does it hurt my feelings when somebody says, I've watched your movie on my TV? Not so much anymore because I know they have a great system usually. Mm-hmm. It does bother me when people say, I've watched your movie on my phone or on my computer, on the airplane. That does bother me. Now, I know that I should have respect for whatever way people want to watch the movie, but it wasn't made for that. It's like saying, I've looked at so-and-so's paintings uh, in a, on, as a series of postcards. It's, it, it's, not, it's not the venue which it was meant to be seen. So I mourn a kind of a change in the... In the and we know, and also, you know, when I got into movies, this was 1987 when I started in college and at USC Film School. And when I graduated in 1991, the scene was still very much the same as it had been in 1935, which was that you made your film, and and it was actually better than it was in 1935. Why? Because you would make your film, and then it would come out on videotape, mm-hmm. and then a few mo- a few years later on DVD. So it had a life which didn't have uh, when it was only in theaters. People don't know that The Wizard of Oz and It's a Wonderful Life were both catastrophes financially. And TV allowed audiences to rediscover it. So in that sense, it's better. We can discover these films for years to come, and it can find new audiences. So that's a plus. Mm -hmm. But the major negative, I keep saying this, is that intimacy, that womb-like intimacy that we have with the screen and it's very powerful, no longer speaks to us, really. I talk to a lot of filmmakers on this show. The end of these conversations always leads to them saying what their next project is going to be. Seven out of ten times, I'm developing a television show, and it's going to be distributed by X entertainment company. You have resisted the uh, urge to make a TV project. Obviously, you are a classical filmmaker, is there any part of you that, as you get older, thinks that that might be something you could do, given the state of things? I'm sure that I I could, and I, maybe I should. You know, there's a beautiful aspect to... I mean, I loved The Sopranos, and I loved Breaking Bad. In fact, there was an episode of The Sopranos, which was Joe Pantoliano beating to death a stripper, which is... It's about, it about an hour long, I would guess, maybe 50 minutes, something like that. I remember watching it, and shaking, like physically shaking afterwards. I found it one of the darkest and most interesting things I had seen in years. And that was a TV show. And I loved Breaking Bad, too. So it's it, there are ways to do things that are just extraordinary. And people have done it. But it is not the same thing. It's not the same talent, really. Mm-hmm. You have to develop a different muscle because it's like, it's like saying to someone, okay, you've, you're writing songs, now go ahead and write an opera. It's not the same medium. You have this, you know, all of my training, if I may use that vulgar word, was about how to structure a two-hour to three-hour long film. 
you know, page 10, angle of attack, page 15, inciting incident, page 30, end of act one. All these rules that they teach you and over and over you try to master it and try to master it and finally after, you know, as, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, 10,000 hours, maybe you've got something in your pocket that you can consider expertise. And then all of a sudden somebody turns around and says, oh, that thing you worked on, that thing you craft, you worked on to master it, no, you got to reinvent yourself now. Now, this is the story, by the way, across the globalized economy. People who used to be doing X or auto workers or whatever now have to retrain themselves to work on microchips or something. It happens everywhere. I used so, to write for magazines. So. Exactly. The world changes. <laughs> yeah. We have to change with it. Adult education. So in a form that's as different as television, I would have to re-educate myself. Having said that, is there a way to turn the 16, 17, 20, 50-hour thing into a weapon, something that's actually better than movies? It's possible. It's, it's maybe even probable. Um, I'm not there yet, so I would be seven out of the 11, I would say, because I'm about to go make another film. I want to keep making films as long as I possibly can. I find that there's something very beautiful and immediate about that medium. Because all of movies, two to three hour long format, is a sense, a form of pop psychology. It's all a form, if I use a dirty word, metaphor. It's all a way of making a film, it's, it's sort of like, it's like a bullet. You know, you watch, we've talked about the Godfather, you watch that movie even at three hours as a narrative juggernaut, it has like one basic concept, the transfer of power from father to son. And the thing is like a locomotive that plunges its way through the center of your chest. And TV operates very differently. It has to by the length of time. Movies evolved to the length that they are for a reason. Around 1930, uh, movies were about 70 minutes long. And then they evolved by the middle of the 30s with the talkies. It really evolved to about the 90 to 120 minute range. And we haven't strayed from that since. There's a reason. There's an evolutionary process at work. And I, I feel that um, I don't want to lose that. You have not lost it yet. Uh, James, congratulations on The Lost City of Z. Thank, Thank you for chatting with me today. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Hey, thanks again to Fusion TV's The AV Club for sponsoring the episode today. Pop culture's everywhere. According to non-existent studies, it's 83% of the things you consume, even more than oxygen. At the acclaimed pop culture website, The AV Club, it's all they ever want to talk about. And now they're coming to TV. The AV Club, hosted by John Teddy, is a weekly deep dive that illuminates all the fun, strange corners of pop culture. 